Ah, it's a hot one. <laughs> yeah, we got to turn on our mics and like do the random banter not off mic so that we don't end up just getting into the cold open and not having anything else to talk about. Yeah. We, we burned through all of our dissecting the similar to the, the line through Europe above, which is potato Europe and below, which is tomato Europe. That's right. We were discussing the extended, uh, rust belt curvature that divides America into <laughs> Protestant and Catholic America. <laughs> yes. Which is primarily of course in new England, the, the most pressing divide in the country right now <laughs> when people say when people say america is more divided than it has ever been what they're specifically referring to is that the pope has been getting out of pocket again uh, <laughs> yeah pontifex I mean, I, wiling out <laughs> there's that one meme of biden like like doing curls while on the phone oh yeah being, being like yes your holiness the what is it the, the anglican and the shintoist have been dispatched no the american people still think i'm senile yeah <laughs> really really good stuff i mean that was that was crazy too because i i feel like boris johnson stepping down and that like wave of mps resigning happened and then like 16 hours later shinzo abe got shot yeah. and everyone was like boris who like <laughs> <laughs> well i think part of that is because like we know that the the whoever replaces Boris Johnson from the Tories is just going to be as shitty, but like more competent. So like, that's right. not, it's harder to, to be like, to get much schadenfreude out of that. Cause like Boris Johnson sucks. But even if like there was a party switch, it's like, what are you going to have prime minister Keir Starmer? Oh, yeah, great. Yeah. Amazing. The, the <laughs> fucking yeah. Keir Starmer, the Boris Johnson of labor. <laughs> yeah. Or if the Tories do muster up somebody, I don't know how the election works. So I don't know if they can, but if they do muster up somebody, it's going to be like, you know, sir, wet bottom Dinklesworth, whose <laughs> grandfather served in the Boer war. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'll be like it, the, the human personification of like some British East India officer who got an award for like hacking off the most limbs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, well, that's it. Well, as long as we're just, uh, bullshitting about elections for a second, I have seen that people are starting to, uh, do forecasting for the 2024 presidential election to which I only have to say, like, uh, please stop doing that. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I catch myself doing it too, because I've been having this intrusive thought recently where it's like, uh, it's, it's going to be Gavin Newsom versus Rick Santorum and I can't get it out of my head. <laughs> Rick Santorum. Yeah. That's the governor of Florida, right? No, that's Ron DeSantis. I was Ron like, DeSantis. Rick Santorum, what is it? 2005 again? Yeah. Ron DeSantis. <laughs> that's who I'm thinking of. They're all the same guy. <laughs> They're mean, all that, wrong, that manager but... from Ithaca. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Okay. So I think it's going to be uh ron DeSantis versus gavin newsom and that's my only contribution to the election discourse until it's 2023 okay which is when <laughs> it's appropriate to start doing this and other countries to be fair a lot of countries in this world countries that are relatively similar to the united states do their elections in like six weeks so yeah. i, we I mean i think it's isn't just another means of social control here because if mm -hmm. if it's always election season it's always the most important election of our lives yeah, and you can <laughs> you can just permanently drown out organizing by anybody to the left right. of the democrats kind of like how it's always toyotathon inexplicably <laughs> that, that's right i mean well this is a honda day's house so that's I mean, right yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we've we got celebrate. right right back to the religious divide that we started with <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, we actually observed Sob Eve in this house the <laughs> night before Sob went out of business. But um, I mean, speaking of elections, that's right. <laughs> to get Let's closer talk about to elections, what, worth a damn. <laughs> yeah, elections that matter, elections that involve workers, uh, and getting something like closer to what we're actually going to talk about in this episode, like. Uh, we got some new numbers that came out last week about how unionizing is going over the last year and the surge in union elections is not an illusion. Like the, the numbers that came out showed that we saw 56% more election petitions over the last 12 months than during the same period last year. And we've already passed the number of election filings from FY like fiscal year 2021, just in the first three quarters of fiscal year 2022. So like, because I, I, I know some people will understandably, I think sometimes try and put the brakes on people like where they, you see one or two election wins and you're like, oh, this is the height of a new surge. Uh, we need to change our <laughs> tactics. But like, this is a real moment of labor upswing. And uh, unfortunately, of course, unsurprisingly, along with that increase in election petitions has come a surge in ULPs because right. they also track that over the same period unfair labor practice charges have also increased by 15%. So, uh, I mean, probably half of that is just Howard Schultz, but (laughs) I I mean, we're seeing union busting go along with this increase in union elections everywhere. Right. Well, I'm glad to see the ULPs go up, honestly, because it doesn't necessarily even mean there are more violations. It just means they're finally fucking getting reported, which they absolutely should be. Uh, but conversely, I'm, I'm just really happy to see all of these figures in general reaffirm what seemed to be the case, which is that there is a major uptick in labor energy. But as somebody who has been developing a deeper and deeper interest in labor over the last two years, I was worried that maybe I was just paying a lot closer attention now and that that was a big factor in, in this seeming like, you know, cause you don't want to get ahead of yourself. You don't want to put the cart before the horse and be like, Oh my God, retail and customer service businesses are unionizing. This is it. It's time for general strike and then socialist revolution <laughs> the next week. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's like, we're it, it's that balance of wanting to be like, uh, genuine enthusiasts and sort mm-hmm. of like cheerleaders for the labor movement because you know uh enthusiasm energy like optimism are a part of any sort of popular movement but you're also trying to balance while like trying to be a materialist at the same time so that you can understand the moment that you're in and adapt your tactics to it and i think for me that's like if you ever need to you know throw some water on anything you can go look at like what were the strike numbers for the 70s and then look at them now and you're just like oh no <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'll that'll sober you up pretty quick. Nothing short. Nothing short. Nothing short of a miracle. Um, but uh, speaking of, of sober and clear-headed labor reporting, welcome That's everybody right. to Work Stoppage, your favorite labor podcast. We only have two of the hosts today. It's just me, John, and Dan. Uh, Lena is busy because sometimes life comes at you fast. I don't remember <laughs> right. whose slogan that is, but it, it stuck <laughs> in my head a lot. Um, so thank you. We're an entirely listener-supported show. Thank you so much for any money you might be throwing us on the Patreon. It goes a very long way towards uh, supporting the show uh get in the discord if you're not already if you are a patron and you don't have your stickers yet please just message us on patreon 
It's so easy. Uh, another thing that's really easy to do is to leave us a five-star review anywhere that you think it will help. Apple Podcasts is the conventional wisdom, but if you just go to one of those trees where everyone's like carved their initials in it with a heart <laughs> around it, and you you just uh, you carve in a little five-star review, I don't think anyone will care. Um, so <laughs> yeah, just, just go down to your local lover's lane and to the fogged up windows and write your review in there <laughs> in the most <laughs> ephemeral way possible. Yeah, that's exactly right. If you can, if you could make a desert mirage look like a five-star <laughs> review for our show that disappears as you get closer to it, that would really be ideal. <laughs> Absolutely. But, uh, speaking of things being ideal, let's talk about some medieval times workers who have actually gone ahead and won their union. We talked about these workers two weeks ago uh, when we talked about the, um, them starting an organizing campaign in Lyndhurst, New Jersey, uh, facing dangerous work conditions, constant understaffing, and lower low wages. They held an election this week uh, where the knights, squires, and stable hands of the NJ medieval times uh, have, have voted successfully 26 to 11 to affiliate with the American Guild of Variety Artists. So congratulations to the knights, squires, stable hands, page boys, falconers, and whomever else may be working at this fine ye old establishment. Yeah, yeah I mean, I'll admit, I, I couldn't uh, stop myself from putting in all sorts of stupid medieval puns when I was writing the notes for this one. But uh, no, I mean, this was really great news. It was really awesome to see this uh, on Friday. It, it also bore out exactly what the workers were saying when they announced their union drive, that they had the vast majority of the workers on their side and they got 70% of the votes, which is the super majority that you're always aiming at. So mm -hmm. that was really good to see also that like, because we heard about the ways that the company tried to stop the union drive by having flying their CEO in to talk with workers and hiring union busting a law firm for $3,200 a day. But that didn't really matter. I mean, even if it turned a couple of votes, uh, didn't get, get them more than 30% against the union. So yeah, I mean, it was really great to see. And we got a, a great letter from the workers afterwards, like thanking everybody who supported them saying, we are excited to have won our union and grateful for the solidarity shown by our coworkers. The guidance and assistance of AGVA's staff and members was instrumental in getting us through this process, and we are proud to join AGVA and the broader labor movement. Additionally, we couldn't be more thankful for the outpouring of support we received from those outside of medieval times. Next, we will use our collective voice to bargain a strong first contract. We look forward to working with management to create a fairer, safer, and more enjoyable medieval times. Together, we will build a workplace that allows us to thrive while doing the work we love. And so, I mean, you hear that and you're like, oh, well, you know, that's a very, like, it's a very congenial response letter. There's no attacks at management there. It's like, we're looking for, honestly, it's like, maybe a bit more uh, like collaborative than I would have had I written it, but I'm also a, a loony communist. So <laughs> yeah, look how nice this is. Maybe a little too nice, you know, <laughs> unironically though. I, I agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> well, but then, you know, you, we see what we get as a response from the company. <laughs> Oh, outright hostility. Yeah. So the, the CEO Perico Montaner, which straight up sounds like a medieval Lord. <laughs> it's yes. insane to me. Uh, so, and, and he's acting like a Lord whose, whose serfs are rebelling, uh, sent out an email recently to all medieval times employees the day after the election. And some selections from the email include, let us be clear about what these employees won today. They won in quotes, scare quotes, the privilege of a third party sitting across the table from the company and asked 
asking for things. <laughs> uh, a company is not required to agree to any proposal that it does not that it does not believe is in the company's best interest, which we won't. Collective bargaining is an uncertain process. Half of all new unions never reach a first contract. There is no time limit on negotiations. We encourage all of you that are interested to monitor the progress of these negotiations and ask questions. Ask yourselves, can you really know what the Lyndhurst, New Jersey employees quote one until you see their contract, which is like, there's a lot of insane scaring shit in here too. But there's also a statement where he's like, can you really see what they've won until you see their contract? Which is, is true. But also I think makes the opposite point. He thinks he's making. <laughs> yeah. Well, Cause that's the thing. It's like, this is, this is the most like petulant. It could, the whole article, it reads so much like, a kid who had his ball taken away and is now just pouting and telling his parents about how he's like, he's writing a letter to his parents being like, I'm going to run away and you're never going to see me again. And won't you be so like mad about how you treated me? And then maybe you'll think about it. It's just like, dude, shut the fuck up. <laughs> like, yeah. You lost. And now all you like, now he's just writing all this stuff where he's just like, we, cause they say in there, we will bargain in good faith. And then writes this shit about half of all unions never reach a first contract. There's no time limit on negotiations. I'm like, okay, those are both threats. Yeah. That's <laughs> clear like, and obvious threats. Yeah. yeah. It's despicable. I, sh- I should have read it in the voice. Do you remember that King of the Hill episode where uh, Hank tries to sell propane to the guy who runs the medieval like Renaissance yes. fair. And he's like, come gas man, come hither and we shall yeah. discuss matters of this. I like, I almost wanted to read the fucking quotes in that voice because that's the energy this guy has, or maybe the energy of that New York times, or maybe it was Washington post article where it was like millennials are going to have to buckle up for a job market. Yeah. God. Yeah. It, it, it. I mean, if anything, like this response just demonstrates exactly how much these workers really needed a union in the first place. Yep. And it, it also goes to the the disconnect between management at medieval times and what it actually takes for these workers to do their jobs. Because behind all this is the clear intimation that if they go into the negotiating table and the company plays hardball, and which it sounds like they're going to, and the workers are forced to go on strike to enforce, you know, what they need need that they just think they can go out and replace anybody like grab anybody off the street and throw them in here which like i don't know that you want to just pull like some random dude and be like now you're a falconer yeah <laughs> for 12 dollars an hour <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I can really imagine like a John Deere situation here where you've got like the regional vice president of sales up on stage trying to do his Hamlet stick and he gets kicked <laughs> yeah. in the ribs by a fucking horse. He's just crumpled <laughs> in a pile on the ground like, oh, prithee, pray tell why didn't I pay mine squires 15 an hour? <laughs> yeah, I- exactly. So this sucks, but it it like it's exactly why these workers need a union. And honestly, I think long term. Mm-hmm. Like, I think this is just going to help these workers in New Jersey to make the case to the workers at all the other locations of medieval times across the country as to why those people also need a union. Cause like the, the idea here by this letter is to like scare those workers and be like, see the union is unproven. It's not going to do anything. It doesn't work. But like, if you're going this hard against them and filling it with these sorts of threats, like I think it's a lot more apparent to any worker reading this. They're like, man, our management really doesn't like us. 
Yeah. And like treats us like shit. <laughs> Lo, and the king has posted a parchment comparing us to lowly criminal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Forsooth, everyone in town knows this is falsity. <laughs> yeah, so I, I honestly, I think all this is going to do is accelerate the timeline for when this moves to the pitchforks and torches stage of negotiations. Yeah. So, ding, I ding, mean, ding. Our, I, well, I just, and, and hopefully with all of the, the retail and consumer and like labor organizing that we've seen, maybe this could be one of those points where this breaks out into other like weird things that you don't expect to be chains, but do exist in almost every major city in the United States, such as PF Chang's and the cheesecake factory and all of those other like weird establishments in that one thin strip of economic viability. I wonder if you could incorporate the workers at like Chuck E. Cheese into the guild of variety artists, because like that's an excellent point like more or less like it's for kids and it's there's the animatronics but like it's kind of the same it's a deal but on like a smaller scale well they make you get in the suit you know they make you put on the chucky suit and go out and like get wailed on by eight-year-olds at a pizza party uh so yeah i really don't see any reason hell let's unionize the animatrons too like yeah (laughs) robo local one zero one zero (laughs) one Oh, wow, man. we just but, wrote a Futurama joke. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Anyways, congratulations to the Medieval Times workers. Hell of a job getting your union, and uh, you know we'll continue to follow this like as they go into contract mm-hmm. negotiations. Because honestly, sounds like there's going to need to be a strike. So if that happens, you know we'll be back talking about it if they have a strike fund or anything ways workers can support them. But congratulations again to these folks and hopefully we start seeing these union drives pop up at the rest of their locations as well hopefully this is the best medieval contract since the magna carta i'm just kidding (laughs) the magna carta was bullshit it didn't really do anything (laughs) yeah and yet it's used as shorthand for anyone's constitution nowadays (laughs) truly it's like the magna carta of bibles or wait the bible of magna but anyway, let's talk about the workers at Verizon, uh, <laughs> more unionizing retail workers. We love to see it, especially in these businesses that frequently get overlooked, uh, like the retail end of cell phone uh, distributors in particular. So these are workers in Portland, Oregon and Flint, Michigan. Uh, on Wednesday, July 6th, the workers at the Portland Verizon Express stores issued a letter to their management stating that they have formed a union with the help of CWA and asking for voluntary recognition by the end of the week. Uh, so these workers are the most recent part of the uptick in retail organizing, including some other Verizon retail locations in Brooklyn and in Everett, Washington. And in the letter, the workers stated, quote, it's time to democratize our workforce. Our customers are happiest and best served when all employees are healthy, respected, and fairly compensated, which is like, I mean, that could be the motto of this show as easily as labor peace is not in our interest. Uh, And then they have a a list of goals that they're aiming to achieve through the collective bargaining process, which includes fair compensation, benefits, raises, and appropriate staffing to provide a safe work environment based on respect, uh, respect for a work-life balance, and understanding that employees have a life outside work. That one's big. Getting that in writing is huge Mm -hmm. because so many employers love to act like you live there. Uh, but they won't let you live there, which is crazy. Uh, <laughs> uh, another one is regular job definitions so that workers are responsible for their job description and not held accountable for responsibilities that are actually those of management. 
that's another big one. Uh, also creating a diverse, inclusive and democratic workplace and empathy in the workplace. So, I mean, like even though the last couple are fairly vague, I really like the energy and I love the absolute relentless specificity of the middle two, particularly making sure that when work is something a manager is supposed to do, it cannot be relegated to somebody who is not a manager. That's enormous. Yeah. Like that's one of those things about union contracts, like job definitions mm-hmm. that I see people like who don't understand this stuff, like attack unions for sometimes because they'll be like, Oh, well, if there's a union contract and like, I want to go measure something on this job site, I can't because that's union work and it, I have to go get some tradesperson to do it. But it's like, this is why that shit's in there. It's because if you don't have a job description, keyed out in your contract, Mm -hmm. then there's nothing to stop the management from basically redefining what your job is to be the job of two people, the job of three people, to keep your place constantly understaffed, to have you doing the job of management, to have you doing stuff that you were never supposed to be doing when you started that can either be used as discipline against you or as a way to just keep the company from hiring new people. And in many cases, they have you doing that stuff unsafely. Like the classic example is a Hollywood set where they're like, okay, if you're on a union set and you, you need a light turned on and it's not plugged into the wall, you can't plug it into the wall. You have to call the union electrician over and it takes like 20 minutes and he comes over and he plugs in the lamp and you're good to go. And everyone acts like this is some huge fucking horror story. One, it's not that bad Two, you're getting paid for that time. And so is the electrician. So you should both be happy about it. And three, here's the really critical one. Having needing an electrician to plug in a lamp is way better than letting an intern mess with a high voltage box. It's just a simple fucking safety decision. Yeah, because I mean, we have all sorts of examples of like what happens in the other case, like that shit Mm -hmm. that happened on that set of the set of rust where the the person got killed because they weren't using union labor and they were bringing in somebody as their prop master had no idea what the fuck they were doing. And then just letting uh, uh, fucking uh, Alec Baldwin wave a loaded gun around on the set. Yeah, (laughs) like I, I get that sometimes these sorts of things may seem a bit in inefficient, but a if you're not a boss, what the, who cares about the efficiency? Cause you're not making money off of it. And two, it ends up saving everybody. And so like, yeah, I agree with you that, that putting that stuff about job definitions in there is really good. But yeah, in addition to those workers in Portland, uh, Oh, just a, like less than a week later on Monday, July 11th. Uh, so a week ago from the day that we're reporting on this workers at a store in Flint, Michigan, sent in a similar request for voluntary recognition for their union of also affiliating with CW. And uh, in their letter, they said, through our union, we will work collectively to implement these values in our workplace, which in turn will help us better serve our customers' needs and the needs of the business. And so, like, you see, uh, yet again, like a very non-confrontational, like, manner from from both these unions, both asking for voluntary recognition, unsurprisingly, uh, as far as I have been able to tell, they did not receive it, and so are going to go forward with the NLRB election route. Mm -hmm. But uh, in, in both cases, those letters were signed by it seemed like almost if not everybody at the store like the vast like super majority so um it like when these elections do come up i would expect both of these stores to win so yeah I mean, well and i really like the act of sending these letters not just as a way of confronting the business but also as a way of like you said um rallying the other workers because when 
it, it can be tough to get everybody on board with stuff. But when you say something like, look, I'm sending this letter to corporate, we are sending this letter to corporate. Do you want to put your name on it? And they read through it. And in an extremely clear language, you are addressing point by point, every issue they've ever fucking faced in their or the most major issues that they face in that workplace. It's going to be hard for people to not be moved by that and, or, and or galvanized in their support of a potential union. So, um, I mean, I think that's really, really huge and has kind of the same energy as like, how sometimes if I'm afraid I'm going to forget something, I'll say it out loud a couple times. And like yeah. that act of that act of making an external uh, representation of unspoken or, or um, uncategorized issues can, can be a really effective way of, of making things clear for people who are trying to organize or just trying to be, you know, happy at work. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really great, like, it's a good structure test for the union, and it's a great way to help workers, like, build their own self-confidence, like, mm-hmm. as a union, as people who should have a say in how their job is run. And so, yeah, it's a really great process for that. And I I always want to highlight these places, like, because I, I know people may be like, oh, it's a Verizon store with, like, 15 employees, like, that's not a, a huge story. But, like, these sorts of service sector jobs, like, are the sorts of things that we've been hearing for years, like, oh, these are, these are unorganizable or like the, right. the, there's, there's too much turnover or it's too easy to replace these workers. It's just like, well, uh, it seems like if you actually let them run their campaign themselves <laughs> uh, and, and they know what the issues that they're facing are, you can get a pretty incredible level of solidarity amongst the workers there. So I think it's really illustrating more that it's been a failure of tactics by right. a lot of the major unions more so than anything about the, like the retail or service sectors that make them in any way unorganizable. Well, speaking of organizing in small chains, that's right. <laughs> I don't actually know how big the Verizon chain is. It's probably pretty big, but we have yet another coffee chain that is unionizing folks. That's like been, I think one of the big themes, like almost of like the last year has just been this enormous surge in it. Cause obviously Starbucks is the big name, but right. I mean, how many different small coffee chains have we talked about? Like Collectivo, Intelligentsia, like the Darwin um, workers in, in Boston, like all sorts of these like different places are now like actually standing up and fighting for their union. This time we're talking about the, uh, Heine Brothers, I think, uh, coffee in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, uh, which is a chain of about, um, there's about 200 workers at 18 locations in the area. And they, as a chain, recently announced their intent to unionize back in April, uh, specifically with the SEIU. And unfortunately... This the reason that I, I well, you know wanted to throw this one on here is not just because we've got you know workers organizing at at coffee soap shops which is also great but it is yet another entry in our long series of never trust a company that tells you that they are progressive because there's so much about like reading about this this is coming out of a story from the real news who did excellent mm-hmm. coverage on this where they talk to the workers about how this chain is supposed to be so so great for the workers so accepting so open and yet the minute they start organizing suddenly that turns off like the flip of a switch like for instance there's a a quote in there where they interviewed a worker Jasmine Bush who told them quote 
Is it ironic that a company that claims to be progressive and supportive of the LGBTQ plus community pays substandard wages to a community that is often marginalized and faces increased societal barriers? We have an incredibly diverse set of workers at Heine Brothers, and right now, we do not feel like our identities are being respected. I mean, this is really huge. And I think this is a really, really great situation for explaining why like, uh, woke capitalism, rainbow capitalism, pink capitalism, green cap, you know, whatever modifier right. you want to throw on at the beginning are, are all essentially bullshit, which is that like, no matter how much one of these corporations might say, Oh, we support such and such group, you know, such and such identity. As soon as people who fall within those categories are employees at the company, they're treated as bad and worse than, you know, right. Other employees would be in, in those same situations. And it, it's, it's the same thing where I think people are, um, they want to measure everything by, uh, some kind of like weird representation metric, like how many people of such and such category right. am I seeing in ads instead of like, what, what are the real economic outcomes for people from different categories in different regions in the United States. And, and when these workers say something uh, like this, where they're, they're saying like, look, this, this company claims to be a, a, a business that supports the LGBTQ plus community. And we, the workers working for them can tell you that that's not the case. I mean, that, that just puts the lie to the whole thing. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and so much of it is like, it's very easy to be like, you can be yourself at work. You can wear a rainbow pin or whatever mm -hmm. while we're paying you $9 an hour. Like it, it, it certainly, of course we want every company to be accepting of everybody's identity. That's very important. But like, it, it's very easy. It's one of those things where a it's very easy for a company to say that they're accepting of these sorts of things. And then when push comes to shove, just be like, eh, we think of you as a labor unit, like anything else. And if there's any way that we can find to exploit the labor market in order to drive down your wages, we're going to go ahead and do that. And like Bush continued, uh, talking with, with the real news explaining, I really do think we need more healthcare, a living wage, and we need more consistency in our scheduling. We're having a hard time making sure our hours are working with our schedules and trying to plan life around that as well. We just want more respect from upper management. We deserve respect and we deserve to be listened to. And I mean, that's true. I feel like of this is, it's one of those things. I know it becomes like cliche on the show, but like we want to bring up these similarities in struggle for a reason, because like it shows that no matter where you work, no matter what the industry in, like we all have these same struggles as workers and we have that same oppression from the boss. Like these folks have talked about specifically that a lot of them rely on their tips just to be able to pay their rent, which I mean, we could go on forever about how fucked up tipped wages are, but like it's, it's one thing to be like, Oh, we're so accepting of our workers, but then you don't pay them enough to even pay their rent unless they happen to get a big tip from somebody like that doesn't, that's not supporting your workforce. No. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of like the employer version of being like, I'm an equal opportunity offender. I make right. fun of everybody. And it's like, yeah, I'm an equal opportunity capitalist. Everybody gets paid the same shit wage. And if you don't like it, uh, but yeah, so I mean, the organizers have pointed uh, to the recent closing of a store in the Douglas loop neighborhood on June 30th of, as an example of how they're being treated. And this blew my mind. The first time I, I read this, um, this is one of those situations where the managers abruptly in the middle of a, of a business day came into the store and announced that the store would close and told workers to clear the store right then and there. 
And of course, you know, no surprise at all. This, this store is one of the ones that was at the lead of the union movement, one of the first in the chain to hit 100% worker support. And then after the closure announcement, they split up all the workers from this store and transferred them to other stores around the city, which pissed off the people who live in the city to no end, yeah. <laughs> who, who turned around and said like, hey, look, we're not going to buy Heine Brothers coffee for as long as you continue to do this union busting, which, you know, I don't want to downplay any efforts that these workers might have made to reach out to their community. I'm sure they did. But like when you see the community just up and be like, hey, this is unacceptable. That's usually a really good sign because community supports yeah. one of those things that goes often overlooked, especially from the outside of, of looking at these campaigns. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's and it and it it just points to it, this sort of thing just cuts through the nonsense that we hear so many times. And I think it's especially important in an industry like coffee shops or just the service sector more broadly, mm -hmm. because there's so many times where we hear from business owners, especially those that class themselves as small business owners, of like, look. I'm not, you know, some Rockefeller or Carnegie out here or some, I guess I'll go with more modern reference, some Jeff Bezos, some Elon sure. Musk, but like, I, I, I'm, these are, it's coffee. It's a, it's a low margin business. And then they come in the middle of a day when there are still customers in the store and it's like, Oh, we're shutting the store down. We're closing it forever. Like, yeah. And it happens to be the store that is like at the front of the union movement. Like, I mean, you are. It's crazy. It's it's an intimidation tactic, plain and simple. Yeah. There is literally no other way to look at this. There are so few situations in life where I'm like, there is one correct way to look at this. This is one of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because like, you can't be like, oh, the store, the, the store was having like bad profit margin. I'm like, well, then why didn't you at least just finish out the day? Yeah. Like well, this is, this is like <laughs> the most heightened version of like, this could have been an email. Like if everything you're yeah. telling me is true, you could have emailed us and let us know. And we could have handled this orderly and without the commotion. But the fact of the matter is, is that every reason that you're giving us for why you did this is a blatant fucking lie that yeah. you tell because you know, there's basically no repercussions. Yeah. And like speaking with the way that this place operates, it sounds like this sort of abrupt change is, is, is actually not that uncommon. Like uh, there was a worker at the company headquarters who was interviewed by the real news who said that she couldn't necessarily remember any similarly like abrupt closures, but that this sort of split second decision is pretty common at the company saying it's pretty on brand for Heine brothers to make big changes and tell employees last minute, which is of course, you know, one of the things these workers are fighting to have a union for so that it's like, look, if the business has problems, if they have profit issues and they do have to close a store because it's not actually doing well, which is clearly not the case in this, this area, then they would have to talk with the workers about it and come up with a plan that works for the company and for the workers rather than just doing this shit unilaterally and splitting up the workers like completely arbitrarily from store to store. And like, they like they talk about in here like some of the stuff that like originally prompted these workers to start organizing uh -huh. and like so many of the places we talk about this started with the pandemic like workers at Heine Brothers at the beginning of the pandemic went on strike to demand safety protocols and hazard pay which of course should have been I mean, they should have been mandated by the state but you know right. hey strikes a great way to get stuff that the state's not going to give you um and the strike closed several of their locations and they eventually won a $2 an hour temporary raise. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this was that like this, the chain's owner, Mike Mays, uh, tried to like 
basically strike break by himself. <laughs> like in addition to having managers like, you know, work drive through and make drinks and stuff. He actually went to one of the stores to like work a shift. And the workers who were working that day said that he found the job so stressful. He left after only a few hours. <laughs> I mean, fucking classic. If the, <laughs> when managers come in and do this kind of stuff or owners, CEOs, whatever, it's always the same story. They either immediately hurt themselves, yeah. damage the product, damage the facilities or quit immediately. I mean, I remember working at Starbucks and our district manager, we got a new district manager and she came in and like in, in her like chummy way of trying to get us all to be like friendly with her. She started helping us behind the line and it was a fucking disaster. I would have rather, <laughs> I would have rather run that whole line by myself than with three competent people and a district manager. Like, <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, but that's why I think that these sorts of incidents, it's like, wow, it sucks that he was just like, rather than just, you know, be like, oh, I should pay the workers who are working right. during a plague hazard pay that he actually tried to do this strike breaking bullshit. But this is so revealing. It's so such an important learning point to be like, hey, you know how they keep telling you that anyone can do your jobs and that's why they only pay you $11 an hour or whatever. Well, clearly the guy who's making the most money in the entire fucking facility can't even do one shift of what the lowest paid worker at the company does. And if there's like a better illustration of the like complete lie that the concept of a meritocracy under capitalism is like, I, it's hard for me to think of a better one. Like, cause you have the highest paid employee in the, in the facility, completely unable to do the job of the lowest paid worker, which is just like, perhaps it is the lower paid worker who is more important to this business. Than. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's really easy to illustrate this stuff in a lot of other industries. Like it, it's almost facile to say like Elon Musk can't design a rocket. Right. Jeff Bezos doesn't know how to make a user interface. Like these are all, just truisms at this point but like mike mays can't even make a cup of coffee <laughs> yeah. for three or four hours like <laughs> i mean it's, it's just like you said and i mean um i think it really gives the lie to the whole idea that like low skill or unskilled labor right. even exists like i every low skill job i've ever had was like weeks and weeks of brutal trial by fire before i barely knew what i was doing yeah Absolutely. And so like one thing though, that's good to hear is that even though this store has been closed, even though the company is, is doing all this union busting, like the workers are not discouraged. They are standing strong to get their union looking forward to their election. And, and Jasmine Bush had one last quote to conclude with saying, we already love our jobs, but we're struggling to make ends meet. So taking that struggle off of us, that stress off of us, that's just going to make these stores even brighter and happier and an even more enjoyable experience. Hell yeah. I mean, I love it when workers talk about the union and, and they just say stuff like, look, we're doing this because it's going to make our lives better. It's going to make your lives better. Sometimes they even look at the boss and they say it will make your life better too. That part's optional. I would even say maybe don't do that, but I, I totally understand doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It, no, it's it. great communications. Like they're, yeah. they're very good at messaging. So yeah, I mean, very excited to hear about, you know, this worker drive, the fact that they are facing this oppression, but they're still fighting back against it. So really looking forward to their election and all our solidarity with these workers. Absolutely. Well, speaking of workers who are facing oppression, yeah. uh, let's talk about the rail workers in this country. And I have to say in this country, because there's some hot shit popping off across the pond regarding rail workers as well. But today we're going to be talking 
uh, about the United States. And we're going to be revisiting the frankly awful situation that uh, railway workers are put in by BNSF, their employer, and the Railway Labor Act, which basically gives the federal government the power to be like, oh, you want to strike? Uh, I can kick that can down the road for a really fucking long time if I have to. Yeah, like this, this is a situation like, I mean, people probably, if you're on labor Twitter, you may have seen people finally actually paying attention to this over the last mm-hmm. week. Um, because unfortunately, like due to the level of control over the industry that the state in this country has, I feel like a lot of people like don't necessarily follow this as much because they're like, well, there isn't anything the workers can do anyway, which to me, I'm just like, that's all the more reason to pay right. attention to it because the contradictions are sharper than any ever, like in the situation that these workers face, because we've talked a bit about, you know, this on the, the show before we've talked about the insane, like what in any civilized, you know, in any society would be clearly illegal attendance policies by BNSF, where they literally give workers only 12 days off per year. That's per year. That's insane. <laughs> Not per month, <laughs> which would be closer to fair. Um, like basically having these guys have to be on call for like 24 seven for like weeks at a time, not mm-hmm. being paid like they're on call. It, it, it's atrocious. And there have been huge amounts of people quitting because of it. But finally we were finally getting through the, the insane bureaucratic process that the railway labor act forces these workers to go to. To, to actually get to the point where they can take advantage of what's called euphemistically in the act self-help, uh, which is their, their term for a strike. That's insane. Um, and so on July 12th, we had the brotherhood of locomotive engineers and trainmen who voted 99.5% in favor of authorizing a strike, which, I mean, that's about as close as you can get to unanimous. And like, so their president, Dennis Pierce came out and said, draconian attendance policies were implemented, forcing engineers and conductors to work day in and day out with no scheduled time off or be fired. These ridiculous policies force thousands of employees out of the industry, either by resignation or termination, further compounding an already understaffed operation. The responsibility for the rail industry and our union, even being in this situation, lies squarely on the rail carriers. They created the mess and they have the power and financial means to fix it. Yeah, which I mean is absolutely true. Uh, The origins of this uh, completely come from BNSF and the other rail corporations. But there is another major player who's fucking this up, which is the federal government. So the Railway Labor Act mandates these cooling off periods, which are 30 day federal mediation periods in which the federal government is given that time to make suggestions, uh, which are not legally binding or binding in any way, as far as I understand. Uh, But the thing that they can do is continue to issue these cooling off periods. So there was a, the the original cooling off period was supposed to expire Monday, July 18th, which would allow the workers to legally strike and shut down the railways. But on July 15th, president Biden, of course, appointed a presidential emergency board to investigate the labor causation and recommend mediation actions, which resets the clock for 60 more days before they're allowed to strike or lock out. And I'm not sure, but I am sure that this is not the last tool in the bag to, like I said earlier, kick this can down the road yeah i mean absolutely it's the the railway functionally the railway labor act makes it illegal for railway workers to strike that's that's essentially how it works because a big part of it is that like 
even the way that it structures the intervention of the federal government puts it into a situation where regardless of party, I mean, like obviously that doesn't really matter in the U S anyway, but like regardless, because this is the thing you got president Biden out here, like, Oh, I'm the most union president ever. But like, he's not going to allow a railway strike, which would cripple the economy going into any election because it would be a political disaster for him. Although I would point out if you were actually pro union, you would just lean into this and be like, look at the disaster. The railway companies are causing. They've destroyed our supply chains by running these workers ragged. Like that's why we're going to nationalize the rail industry. That's how you do it. If you were, you know, actually pro union, but instead, as you said, what are you talking about? Trying to convince workers that you're on their side. <laughs> by that's, doing things that materially improve their lives. Well, I was going to say that's what Republicans do, but then you said by doing things that materially improve their lives. <laughs> and I'm like, there, yeah, there ain't nobody doing I, that in the U S yeah, nobody does that. Um, but yeah, then as you said, so he got to, but we got to what is basically these, one of the final steps in the process that's laid out for conflict in the railway labor act where, Right before they were allowed to strike, Biden pulled the football away by uh, by appointing this presidential emergency board to Mm -hmm. evaluate stuff. And so, yeah, as you said, like it now resets the clock by 60 days. So during this, it's because there's a there's a 30 day period after which the board is supposed to issue its recommendations, which are not binding on the company and the company, knowing that the 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 Congress is never going to allow the the railways to shut down can just be like, Oh, that's interesting. We'll take that under advisement and not actually change anything because we're making enormous profits. Um, and so then there's another uh, assuming that, you know, the two sides don't rectify based on agreeing with the board's recommendations, which is almost certainly not going to happen. There's another 30 day cooling off period. So it's 60 days from today, the day we're recording this, which is July 18th. So it's, uh, I believe September 18th, is the next day that it comes up that these workers could strike. And that's the end of the railway labor acts road. But at that point, what has happened in the past is that Congress, like I believe the last time this was going to happen, there was a strike for less than 24 hours mm-hmm. and Congress issued a back to work order basically because they can just unilaterally say, the railways are too important to national commerce and the survival of our country's economy. We cannot allow you to strike. And so, uh, if you persist with this strike, we will hold the union in contempt, uh, start seizing union money, finding huge amounts of, of money. And, and it basically be the PACO strike, but on, um, the railways. That's crazy. And, and there's no way to file a back to work order for Congress, right? Like when they take those right. breaks right after something important happens, they're like, see you in three weeks. We can't tell them like, no, you have to work. Well, there is, it's just not a legal method. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> they talked about worker self-help, right? If, if you want to get <laughs> villagers from Shrek about it. Yeah. We right. Can. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, I mean to that. Yeah, it, you're exactly right. And well, I think one of the more frustrating parts about seeing this was not just that like Biden, it stepped in to prevent the workers from striking. Cause that was, I mean, as bad as that is, it was pretty much assured to happen. Sure. 
But it was seeing people come in and, and even like the AFL CIO being coming in and being like all obsequious to Biden, be like, oh, thank you, President Biden, for intervening and to help the workers deal with the intransigence of the rail carriers so we can come to a situation that solves our supply care chain oh. issues. That's not a quote. I'm the, just like they, paraphrasing. That's, like that's the way you saying, fucking but. talk, though, like when you represent the police unions and you know that <laughs> yeah. those guys are going to have to go break the strike if these rail workers like violate you know federal law or whatever. Yeah. And, and so, cause you have all these people being like, oh, this is a, this is a neutral move by the president doing this. He's not on either side. It's like, that's not true. The workers had all voted to strike basically unanimously in these enormous rail unions and the government's coming in and saying, uh, 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 no, you got to wait your turn. <laughs> and right, so it's right. like, it is, it is a clearly pro business move. It's just very frustrating to see some people be like, Oh, this is neutral from our pro union president coming in to tell workers they can't strike. Well, I mean, shit in, in many, even if it was neutral, it would still be pro business because being neutral, Neutral yes. is being pro business anyway, but yeah, yeah. So all of that is 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 fucking happening. Uh, we have to wait sixty days while the presidential board makes these quote recommendations, which are not legally binding at all. And uh, you know, this is just something that we've seen over and over again. There are so many industries that are in one way or another, you know whether they're they're not uh, categorized under the NLRA, whether they have their own special exempted status, whether they're not really, you know, clearly defined by the text of the law at all in the case of many gig workers and uh, immigrant workers and agricultural workers. Um, and it's just like every opportunity that, that our government has to, to not even really help, but just like stop being an active harm. Uh, yeah. They don't, you know, they're, they're afraid of it because they're afraid that it means they're going to stop getting money from like, I don't know, the Sackler family or whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a bunch of things that I think we should take away from this one. The railway labor act is wholly anti-worker and needs to be repealed yeah. um, as a minimum uh, Two, I think that it's in the interest of the entire labor movement for groups like the Teamsters and the ILWU to be talking with the rail unions about yeah. the possibility of sympathy or solidarity strikes, which yes, under Taft Hartley, those are illegal, but um, we didn't build the labor movement by following the legal restrictions. And we're not going to rebuild the labor movement by doing that either. That's right. So you like, know, if, if we, if we, if we're confident enough to say, fuck the, the um, railway labor act, I think we should also be confident enough to say, fuck Taft Hartley. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. Taft Hartley is one of the worst, you know, labor laws on the book. So that also has to go, but even while it's on there, like we need, because that's the, that was one of the things that hurt Patco, like why right. Patco was able to be broken by the Reagan administration was because it more or less the air traffic controllers stood alone on that front because the AFL CIO had no interest in getting involved. It was the era of concessionary contracts and complete right. like ret labor retreat. And we need to have not let there be a, a repeat of that. And the only way that these rail workers are ever going to be able to get a contract that actually makes their jobs like a real career and not a living hell like they are now is for them to be able to exercise their rights at the point of production. And they're not going to be able to do that if they're standing by themselves. And so I think it's really vital that may other major like freight unions, which is why I highlighted the teamsters and the ILWU need to be ready to like potentially get involved here. And I, I think that, that that would be a great potential moment for labor solidarity. I don't think it would have to be that long because despite threats that we might get from like, the, oh, we're going to use the National Guard to run the trains. 
I'm not particularly confident the National Guard is capable of running like three mile long freight trains very well. <laughs> the National Guard is a bunch of dudes who got tricked into military service by being given a free meal at Wendy's. So <laughs> not to talk too much shit, but no, they're not locomotive engineers. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And obviously long term, the important thing to do is nationalize the rail system because the idea that that if, like that these things are so important to commerce across the entire country and therefore we should allow them to be run by six small monopolies. Yeah, well, that's like, insane. Not small, it, it's, it's categorically national transport when you build yeah. a rail system that goes across a whole country. So it should be nationalized. I don't think that's a huge stretch or yeah. even really socialism. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. There's so many very capitalist countries that have publicly owned railways because there's the acknowledgement that it's like, okay, well this industry is, is so incredibly central to the functioning of all of the other ones that if we allow this to be run ragged by like pure, like quote unquote free market, right. like uh, mechanisms, it's just going to fall apart. Like our rail system is right now. Incredible. But yeah. Nationalize anyways, it and do the internet next. If you can. Uh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, solidarity with the rail workers, fuck the railway labor act, but we have another, this is actually a little similar to the, uh, medieval times situation. We have another, mm-hmm union win in a, uh, you know, supposedly progressive area immediately followed by retaliation. Uh, this time this is, uh, in the same vein as when we were reporting on uh, Planned Parenthood workers unionizing yep. last week. Uh, this is about workers at the Guttmacher Institute, which, uh, that is, they're an NGO that were formerly a part of Planned Parenthood, but then were sort of spun off as like a separate policy arm slash think tank slash like, you know, research, uh, institute that's set up sure. to develop policy around access to reproductive health care, abortion rights, all these sorts of things. You know, uh, we're not the biggest fans of, of, of NGOs as a model for how to change things here, but that, uh, of all the things an NGO could do, those are pretty laudable goals. Sure. So, absolutely. And so like the workers at the Guttmacher Institute announced a little while back that they had formed a union with the office and professional employees, international union, the OP, EIU local 153 and asked for voluntary recognition thinking, Hey, this is a capital L liberal NGO. Their whole thing is about like, we want to make sure that like, you know, people have access to reproductive health care and, and freedom. And we're focusing on progressive issues. This should be pretty simple. Right. And so they, they, they asked for voluntary recognition on May 2nd, which kind of ironically is the same day that the, the draft leak of the, the Dobbs decision from SCOTUS actually leaked, right. uh, you know, basically announcing that they were going to get rid of Roe v. Wade. Uh, and yet once again, <laughs> Another one of these supposedly progressive institutions responded to their workers asking for a union by refusing to recognize them and hiring a union busting law firm, Jackson Lewis, to try and break the union drive. Yeah, I mean, this is just standard practice from companies and corporations and NGOs and all of that stuff that uh, promote themselves as being, oh, we're so liberal, we're so progressive, we're so uh, forward thinking. But it's like, okay, here's your terrible wages. Here's your toxic work environment. Uh, If you have any problems, please come to us one on one so we can threaten to fire you for bringing them up. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, you know workers uh, at at this Guttmacher Institute have said that a big part of what prompted them to form their union was uh, they had no say in any kind of decision making and extremely high turnover. Uh, more than a quarter of the organization's researchers have left, left in the last year, which is the kind of turnover rates you expect to see at like retail. 
uh, yeah. businesses, not at research in, and policy <laughs> institutes. Yeah. That's insane. Those should yeah, be careers. I mean, I don't know if they should exist at all. If you're going to work at one, they should be careers. Right. Um, but yeah. And uh, so they also had unclear promotion criteria, unequal compensation and hostile behavior for management. And workers have said that a part of why they want to unionize is to quote, alleviate the organization's high attrition rate at a crucial time for our movement. Not meaning, I think the labor movement, but I think meaning the reproductive rights yes. movement, which is mm-hmm. like, yes, absolutely. Reproductive, reproductive rights are as under attack as they possibly could be in the United States right now. And for the people who are leading these organizations to take time out of what should be their very busy days, trying to fight for reproductive justice to turn around and knife their own employees. I mean, it's just, it's pure and utter derangement. And and I know that this is what capital does to people's brains, but it's still kind of almost hard for me to believe. Yeah, no, absolutely. And one of the weirder parts of this drive, actually, this is how I originally heard about it, Mm -hmm. was one of the things that's specific to here is like with the Guttmacher Institute being in D.C., being a liberal think tank, therefore being heavily tied to the Democratic Party. They also have a lot of ties with the media. And so like after the workers announced the drive, The Intercept published what is basically an anti-union hit piece on the Guttmacher Institute where they framed this this article in which none of the workers who are part of the the union movement were actually interviewed as basically the workers raising concerns about diversity inclusion that are, that were attempting to quote, rip the organization apart end quote. Uh, And like the articles, like major point seemed to be that workers at such an important place as the Guttmacher Institute under, under a period where reproductive rights are so heavily under attack, they shouldn't be thinking about like themselves and their own, you know, personal crusades to, to, to get their salaries up. They should be thinking about the movement and, and, and that really by unionizing right now, they're attacking the Guttmacher Institute when they should be focused on defending reproductive rights. Again, that's all a paraphrase, but that's basically what the, the article is arguing, which is ridiculous and goofy. And, and part of the reason I find it difficult to trust the intercept, right. but like, Thankfully, despite the weird media hit piece, despite the hiring of ja- of uh, Jackson Lewis to try and break the union, uh, all that shit failed massively. Like, and so this past Tuesday, July twelfth, workers announced that not only they won their election, but in a in a fucking landslide, sixty one to two. That's fucking so, crazy. That's like ninety four percent or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So overwhelming as to practically be unanimous. And so, uh, I mean, just showing that, you know, when you have a United workforce like this, it's probably in your interest as a company to just not waste your money on these like union busting lawyers. Oh, but, oh, but yeah, they're, they're but, more than willing to waste their money. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, again, we see with so many times with these places that call themselves progressive, say they care about their workers. And the minute those workers say, Hey, we would like to have a smidge, a crumb of power and say, and how the place that we spend the majority of our lives operates, they act as if they have been betrayed by a close family member. because like less than an hour after the workers victory in their union election was announced worker organizer, Sam, uh, Hain, I'm not sure, mm-hmm. uh, was fired 
but just summarily fired by management. And so, of course, the union is calling for her immediate reinstatement and for management to accept the results of the union and stop fighting it. And they've put together a petition demanding that the company rehire Sam Hain. I, I, I will make sure to put that in the uh, show notes. And yeah, it's this whole thing is just so frustrating because like none of this had to happen. They could have literally just voluntarily recognized the union. Well, and, and they, they should have known contract. better. They should have known better too, because like when you, when you operate in this part of, I don't even want to call it the economy, but when you have this kind of like model of operation, you should know that many of your workers are going to be very ideologically motivated, like in a right. good way. Not like we say like ideologically motivated combatants in Ukraine, for example, but ideologically motivated, like they want to help people. So they took a job where they feel like they can help people. And then when you fuck them, they're like, you can't fuck me. I'm here to help people. You know, yeah. <laughs> like that really pisses people off. And then they vote 61 to two to form a union <laughs> so they can collectively say, fuck you. You don't fuck me. We help people like, <laughs> yeah, well, and I also love, cause there was a, there was a quote in, in the guardian where they'd interviewed some of the workers and like in one sentence, one of the workers at Guttmacher in that article mm -hmm. completely blows up the stupid bad faith arguments that like people have been trying to make to be like, this is why these workers shouldn't unionize like shit and like that intercept hit piece. So this is a, this is from Ashley little, who's a research assistant at Guttmacher who said both abortion and workers rights are about having control of the decisions that affect your life. And if we're going to continue on in a post row America, workers need to have a say in their lives. Fucking bingo. Yeah. So, I mean, all solidarity with these workers. We'll post that petition in the show notes. Yep. But I mean, if it, if the theme of this show is anything, it's never trust your fucking boss, no matter how <laughs> progressive that they say they are. All right. Well, I mean, uh, speaking of jobs where people get them because they have a specific goal in mind. Uh, let's talk about workers at Yellowstone and the what else union busting that they are facing. So uh, we usually think when we talk about union busting, we usually think about like really big corporations or like, you know, the stores or businesses that are large enough that they have a big enough employee pool to hire a union busting firm to come into the break room, yada, yada. What if your break room is a national park <laughs> and you are uh, a bunch of tour guides at Yellowstone who are trying to unionize because you're being being paid, uh, in many cases, what were they being paid? Um, $50 a tour, something like that. Oh yeah. Yeah. While the, uh, while Yellowstone was chart or I'm sorry, who owns, who owns this? Because this was the, the Delaware park. North Delaware North. Okay. So one Yellowstone national park is a national park, but it's administrated by this Delaware North is, is that yeah, what's happening? Yeah. So Delaware North is a federal contractor mm. that they uh they run the parks services for the national park services this is um, this is the problem with like this is what's happening in England with a bunch of their nationalized mm -hmm. shit is like you nationalize something and then you contract out the administration mm -hmm. of that nationalized thing. And it's like, you never even nationalized it in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. It's, Oh, it's like, how can we privatize this without, people knowing we privatized right. it and getting mad and doing anything to stop us. Uh, and yeah, cause this all comes out of a report from capital and Maine by Mike Elk and Rachel. Fuo. This is a really, this is a really good article. It's pretty long. I, I recommend folks check it out, but yeah. I, so Yellowstone national park is probably not necessarily the first place you would expect to see a union drive. Although I guess perhaps if you'd followed like, you know, ski patrollers, it's a bit analogous mm -hmm. to that. Um, but yeah, like these are folks who give guided tours and at all, 
all like, you know, in some of the most beautiful parts of the country. So it's obviously a job that attracts people who are very passionate about doing it, which unfortunately is how national, uh, how Delaware North gets away with paying most of these workers, uh, $12 an hour and never giving them a set schedule. And like so many workers we talked about, I mean, even when we were talking about the Heine brothers workers, like, uh, what originally pushed a lot of these workers to unionize was the conditions during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, once the pandemic hit, like so many workers, like had started to note that like, uh, a lot of us have to go to the food bank just to be able to get food, despite the fact that they're all employed full time. And, and what you were alluding to John, like, so they laid out in this, that for a dozen people, a guided tour would bring in the company about $1,800. So like a bit is because it was like, they were charging about $150 for like a, a guided tour around the park. And for that tour, the guy, the guide made a grand total of 50 bucks. That's insane. <laughs> out of 1800, uh, which is ridiculous. I mean, this is like uh, an even more exaggerated version of like the GameStop situation where it's like, I got a job at GameStop because I like games and now I'm making $12 an hour, except it's like, I got a job at Yellowstone national park because I like teaching people about nature and I'm getting paid $12 an hour and I have to get food assistance and I have to scrimp and save it. it, it, That's just absolute fucking derangement. And of course the company also basically the way they do their scheduling, it's not like, okay, you've got, these are the days we have the, usually the most tours. So we'll have four guides this day. Maybe during the week, we only have three and on the weekends, maybe it goes up to six. Sure. Uh, no, they treat this as an on-call basis more or less. So they only were scheduling workers based on the number of daily tour requests, which means that the workers are on call at all times and never know when they're going to be scheduled. Like functionally, it's not much different than, you know, like the, the old school days of like longshore work where you would just have a hundred guys show up at the port and they'd be like, Oh, we need 56 dudes today. They'd pick a bunch and then all the rest, you don't have anything to do. Like, it's not fundamentally that different from that. Like there was a, they, they quoted a former guides, uh, Sophie Krautman, who said our daily pay for running these guides was less than the cost of one seat on the tours that I was giving. And I'm taking 15 people in at a time, some days, 24 seven, you're on call essentially. And you're not getting paid like you're on call by any means or treated like you're on call. Right. Which is another thing. I think a lot of people, because on call has come to mean a different thing in the modern labor market today, but it used to mean like, yeah, you might be required to come in, but you're also being paid sometimes a partial, sometimes a full wage for being in that slot of availability. And so the workers at Yellowstone got together uh, in their off hours and after many different discussions that they had decided to form an independent union. Uh, for reasons that Ty Wheeler explains, who is uh, one of the fired worker organizers. And, and Ty says, quote, the turnover is just high due to seasonal work. And the culture is so unique that the only way you're going to organize these places is with an independent union that workers feel they are truly running, which makes a lot of sense. It might be kind of difficult for, let's say, you know, the RWDSU or the Teamsters or whoever to come in and be like, wow, this is a whole different arrangement of working conditions than we're used to experiencing, but to have these workers come together and on their own decide like, Hey, look, this is going to be a worker led rank and file independent union. I think that bodes really well for their chances. 
Yeah. And just as a little bit of background on the company that is doing all this contracting, uh, Delaware North is an enormous contractor. Mm -hmm. Like in 2019, they made $3.7 billion. Uh, They're they're owned by Jeremy Jacobs, who, if there's any other listeners in the Northeast listening to the show, may be familiar with him because he's the owner of the Boston Bruins and who is mostly famous throughout the league of being one of the biggest cheapskates in the league and one of the driving forces behind the last two lockouts that the league has had because he didn't want to pay the players more of the money. So that's, you know, give it an idea of the sort of corporate uh, governance that we're seeing at, at this company. And that leads you to basically how the company responded when they heard about this union drive, uh, where they kind of took a page out of the Howard Schultz book where, uh, they first just started threatening to take shifts from workers, then just straight up fired seven of the lead organizers. And, and I mean, they even moved into this stage of, physical threats like uh, uh, Ty Wheeler explaining like what happened after they, you know, they found out about the union drive said, I never had anyone spit or threatened to beat me up until I tried to unionize at Yellowstone. One of the anti-union guides said basically, yeah, you're going to do this. I'll take you out in the alley and we'll settle this. <laughs> well, I mean like it's easy to laugh at that. Cause it sounds like a little bit like a Joe Bidenism, but that is a straight up right. threat of like physical, Violence. I mean, that's not just against the National Labor Relations Act. That's against like plenty of regular laws. Yeah, no, that's criminal threatening. Yeah. Um, but like, I mean, also like just in addition to that, like just the company's response of throwing the people out because because they're working at Yellowstone, because mm-hmm. this is a relatively remote area, these workers generally live in company housing. And, you know, anybody who knows any of the history of company-owned housing knows how powerful the threat that is because as soon as those workers were fired, they were thrown out of the company housing. And this is during, I believe this was in February. So, like, right. like the Wheeler explained, they had to move out of the company housing in minus 16-degree weather. And there's not cheap housing around. So one of them literally drove immediately to Arizona to live there because it was warm and he could sleep in his car. Other people had to drive for a day straight to go stay with family members. That's insane. I mean, piecework, company housing, there this is really like verging on a on a typical company town situation like you would have seen in the oh, last yeah. century. Uh and so yeah, I mean the workers uh pretty much immediately filed a ULP and eventually the NLRB did reach a settlement with Del- Delaware North to rehire those fired employees and stop union busting. It's always so funny to me when they agree to stop union busting. You shouldn't have been doing it in the first place. But of course then, uh, of course since then the company has flagrantly and repeatedly violated this agreement, refused to rehire any of the fired workers. Uh And you have Ty Wheeler explaining, quote, these are our national parks, our national treasures, and these private contractors are treating them like company towns. I mean, there it is. It couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, I mean, it's this is it's there's a lot of this, honestly, that reminds me a lot of the Starbucks playbook of just fuck you. Uh, we don't think that the consequences available to the NLRB and the federal government in, in labor law, even if they're against us are strong enough to justify us. Not just saying this is our company. Uh, fuck you. (laughs) If you want to unionize, you're all fired. We'll hire other people like, and, and that's, you know, one of the big problems we always talk about here on like legal remedies under this because like it's why strikes are so important it's why we need to support independent unions when they pop up because it is when you have a company like this that's making four or five billion dollars a year they can hire a hundred lawyers to just 
file bullshit complaint, bullshit argument, bullshit challenge, bullshit appeal over and over and over again and drag this shit out forever and never actually do anything. And so like, I I mean, workers have called on president Biden to take action to stop federal contractors from union busting, but I'm not going to fucking hold my breath for that to happen. Oh, especially when he just like forced those railway workers to work without being able to strike for 60 more days. Yeah. So I I don't know. I, I, this story, it's really tough because like it's a high turnover industry. It's the sort of thing where you have a larger pool of people who are interested and passionate about doing this work Mm -hmm. than you have available jobs, which makes it really easy for companies like Delaware North to just say, look, if you don't like it, I can go find 10 people who want to do this job for even cheaper, which is fucked. And it's like, it's exactly why we need to publicize stories like this so that workers know about it and that they can stand in solidarity with these fired, you know, union organizers. And, and honestly, if you're, you know, if you're thinking about going to a national park, maybe look into what the arrangement is for how the like services are run there. Because if you're thinking about getting, say a guided tour, you may not be really getting it from the park service. You may be getting it from a union busting company like Delaware North. Right. Absolutely. Well, um, speaking about all of the parallels between this and Starbucks, we may as well just follow that road, uh, yeah. <laughs> over to, over to the land of, of Starbucks and the union activity that's been taking place over there. And, uh, this time we are going to have to start off with a bit of a sour note, but it's not just sour. Yeah. It's also a little weird and kind of smells of fuckery, uh, where there were a few losses. And so we have a store in Fresno, California, which voted unanimously against unionizing. I believe that's the first time we've seen that. Uh, And then a store in Fitchburg, Wisconsin, which voted one to 21 against unionizing. Also, uh, we have not seen all we're, we're all of a sudden getting these vote totals, but we've never seen ones like this in the literally hundreds of elections that have happened so far. Um, And so to, to actually reach these incredibly low totals after having 30% requirement of support to file means that there's either union busting retaliatory firings, threats of store closure, or to my mind, maybe even just some way that Starbucks has figured out to mess with the vote totals directly. Yeah. yeah. I mean this, these numbers are fucking wild when I saw them. Cause like I've seen, you know, we've, we've had lost elections. There's been about 35 of them, Mm -hmm. but they're usually real close. Um, there have been a couple where there's been like, it's been more lopsided, but not many and nothing like, how do you get a unanimous vote against unionizing when again, it takes 30% of the workers being signing union cards to get the filing in the first place. Yeah, well, so I mean, like at that point, you're telling me the lead organizer did not vote for the union, which is right. like, fuck you. Like, shut up. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and it's, and, it, and it's confusing. Cause it's like, you can look at, okay, maybe they fired all the union organizers, but even if they did that, once they filed for the election, it freezes the voting rolls. So they would still be right. able to vote. Yeah. Like even if they got fired, which is why it's so confusing to me because uh, it's the sort of thing where it, my best hypothesis is that these are stores where they combine things like threat of store closure with threats, like the threats we've talked about of, of lo- losing re- access to reproductive health care, of losing access to like gender affirming health care, mm-hmm. and like just generally with threats that they would basically break up the bargaining unit, that they would slash people's hours so they would no longer have access to benefits. Because like that's it's just a baffling vote. Like it's not that they lost that is baffling. It's that those, that margin 
after such a relatively short period, like, cause at most is a couple of months right. since they filed for the election. The only way that can happen is with extreme interference from Starbucks, like to the point where I would honestly argue that I'm like, those vote totals to me are like evidence of an election that was not held in a fair manner and should probably be investigated by the NLRP. I mean, I don't even think you need to be like a labor researcher or, or a journalist or anything to, to know that you could just be a worker or for instance, a statistician who would see yeah. hundreds of results following a pretty predictable pattern. And then all of a sudden you have these extreme outliers. It's like, I mean, that's, it's certainly raising my eyebrows. I would hope it raises yeah. anyone else's. And there was one other loss, like there was a store in Peoria, Illinois, that the the workers lost their union election two to two, which that is like either the smallest store in the country. Yeah. <laughs> or they just had essentially no participation in the election because or, or like it's a situation you, where they, they maybe normally have 10 or more people on staff, but many of them may have been fired for various other quote unquote yeah. reasons leading up to the election. Yeah. So it really seems like we're getting even more aggressive union busting from mm -hmm. Starbucks in some of these cases. And the one in Fresno, I just wanted to, to point out because if folks have been looking at the tracker, it has been a bit weird to see that California, which again is held up as this like lefty state, which it's not, but like uh, there's this idea, but California has been like the weird outlier where over a quarter of all the election losses so far for Starbucks have been in California. So right. it, it still does have more wins than losses, which I think is just a testament to the, you know, power of the Starbucks workers United movement, but it's, it has been an odd concentration of losses in California. And so I, I don't know, it's just an odd trend that we're going to be keeping our eye on. And, you know, in addition to these, clearly interfered with elections uh, that resulted in a few losses. Uh, Starbucks announced another escalation of their anti-union campaign this week, saying that they're going to be closing 16 stores across the country, three of which uh, have recently unionized two in Seattle and one in Portland. And the rest of all had some sort of organizing activity. Uh, and the company claims the reason that they're closing these stores is due to quote, a high volume of challenging incidents that make it unsafe to continue to operate like basically blaming crime in the area for why they're closing the stores. Well, and but, also like the phrasing challenging incidents is a right. partly a way to say union activity without saying it, which would be illegal. Yeah. And I mean, workers interviewed like, uh, by CNN, by HuffPost, like other places that I, I look for articles about this were basically like, I don't know what the fuck they're talking about. <laughs> like, uh, and, and when, and when workers at those stores went to their management and said, wait, what incidents, like wh why are they closing our store? They were not given any specific examples. And so like all of this, they, they workers also pointed out, um, about 3% of all the Starbucks in the country have filed for union elections. Uh, 30% of these stores that Starbucks is closing have filed for union elections. So it is not a representative sample. It is heavily weighted against the union stores. This is clearly retaliation. And I mean, Starbucks workers United followed, filed a ULP against the company for it saying within the past six months, the employer closed and or threatened to close at least 16 stores in order to discourage union activity, retaliate against workers engaged in union activity and or escape its obligation to bargain with the union. Right. And right. yeah. Well, and, I mean, uh, 
they're right. <laughs> they're, they're absolutely right. And then, you know, on another front, Starbucks has also announced in a letter to workers on Thursday, July 14th, that they are refusing to accept the results of the NLRB election, not something you can do, uh, at the Seattle Roastery. And in the letter, they claim that having a mail-in election instead of in-person, quote, improperly reduced the number of Starbucks partners who participated. And as proof of this, they cite that only 66% of workers who submitted ballots for the election, uh, no, rather, as proof of this, they cite that only 66% of workers submitted ballots for the election, whereas 95% did at the in-person election in New York City, which Starbucks also lost. And uh, this excuse, one, is incoherent, two, (laughs) is bullshit, and I mean, three, it's just like, regardless of how you have the election, Starbucks always has the option of saying, oh, you should have done it the other way. This way is actually not fair. So fuck you. You don't get a choice. When the NLRB says that the workers won an election, they won the election. You have to bargain with them now. Yeah, I mean, I I know everybody, all the libs love making this comparison, and it's often very facile and very annoying and boring. But like... In this specific case, I cannot help but think of the parallels with so many of our bourgeois politicians just refusing to accept election results. And this is not to say that I think there's some incredible sanctity of elections in the United States. There isn't. But like the default posture now amongst our capitalist ruling class politicians is like, oh, the election results didn't come out the way I wanted it. Well, clearly the election was fake. Right. Uh, Like, and so that's the thing. It's like if you can point to a specific you know, issue like for instance, the fact that for an election to be called requires there at least 30% support. And then the workers get no votes. That is a major irregularity. That is the sort of thing I think should be looked into the idea that like, well, they did a mail-in ballot again during a pandemic. Right. Uh, and then I lost. So that means mail-in elections are bad. <laughs> like, uh, Okay, but you also lost in-person elections at an exactly comparable store. So yeah, yeah, I mean it's I mean it's just a three-year-old it, version of being like, oh, I lost. You did it wrong, and then you just rinse yeah. and repeat until you win, which is like, yeah. I mean, yeah, it, that's it, that's a that's a one-to-one parallel to the way Donald Trump acts. So I really yeah. have no <laughs> nothing further to add to that. Yeah, but uh, so thankfully, though, you know, workers are not as I mean, I've been saying this a lot, but I think it's important is that these workers are not just leaning on the NLRB. They as more stores get organized, we are seeing more strikes, which is very important because it's the only way these workers are going to get a first contract. And so this weekend we saw strikes all over uh, from three stores in Pittsburgh, where two worker organizers were recently fired in retaliation for the store's union drive, uh, which I mean, Pittsburgh has been a real hotspot of of labor militancy in the Starbucks workers United movement, which rocks. So like props to Pittsburgh Starbucks workers. Um, I mean, we had workers at a unionized store in Utah had a walkout on Friday and Utah certainly is not, you know, usually seen as a hotbed of labor organizing. So Utah is not usually seen as a hotbed of anything, unless you literally (laughs) mean like a hotbed of dirt, in which case they got it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and we also saw strikes, of course, in Seattle, where, you know, there's this attempt to close down multiple stores, the attempt not to recognize the, the roastery election. So there were, uh, I believe, uh, also three stores in Seattle that struck Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Um, and the roastery went on strike on Sunday. And apparently, normally on Sunday, the roastery brings in about $50,000 in sales. And uh, since they completely shut the store down, uh, they brought in nothing for that day. So, like, that's the thing. It's like, 
obviously we look to try and get remedies with the NLRB whenever we can. Of course, if, if right. we can get some help from the law, that's good. But, you know, taking 50K out of their wallets by shutting down the store and doing that at hundreds of stores across the country for an extended period of time, that's probably going to get results like quicker. So I, you know, I just really wanted to highlight that there's even a strike uh, today at, in Boston, uh, at one of the stores where they have also seen retaliation against workers for organizing. So I think it's really good to see that the Starbucks workers United movement is responding. I think the only proper way that you can to this scorched earth campaign by Howard Schultz and, and Starbucks management, which is like, look, fuck you guys. <laughs> like we have hundreds of stores. Now you have to negotiate with us. If you're not going to negotiate with us, then we'll shut the damn stores down. And, and you, you figure out how much money you're going to lose in that process. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, that's the thing. They can threaten to shut down stores tactically, but they can't threaten to stop being a business. So you can always right. hit them in the profits. Yeah, absolutely. And then just to close out though, with our wins of the week, we got another store in Buffalo Damn, last Buffalo. Monday, the 11th. Uh, we got a, a store in Alcoa, Tennessee, adding to the continued string of wins in the South. And we got a couple new states last week on Thursday when workers in Biddeford, Maine became the state's first unionized store and workers at a Starbucks in Burlington, Vermont became the first unionized store in that state. And then closing it out on Thursday, uh, we had another election where workers in Vernon, Connecticut became Connecticut's second unionized store. I am now eagerly awaiting the results of the election at a store here in Warwick in Rhode Island so that we can finally get Rhode Island on the map. Hell yeah. Northeast is finally coming along. I mean, once you get Vermont in, I feel like Vermont's the cool <laughs> kid of the Northeast. Everyone else kind of hops on the bandwagon. They're like, you're telling me <laughs> Murray Bookchin and Bernie Sanders thought this was a, who else is from Burlington? Todd McGowan thought this was a good idea. <laughs> I'm in. That's right. But yeah, I mean, as frustrating as the Starbucks campaign of union busting is, I still think that like just the sheer numbers and the level of militancy mm -hmm. that we're seeing from Starbucks workers United is continuing to be one of the most inspirational stories in the labor movement in years. And so uh, continue to be really excited to see where it's going to be going in the future. Absolutely. Well, uh, speaking of where it's, how it's going now, I suppose, <laughs> uh, this is a great opportunity to slide our way into the much anticipated meme review. We have a meme that is one of my favorite formats where you just screen cap a tweet. This is a tweet from <laughs> at G Babufing, I don't know how to say this handle, screen name Patrick's running for EC, and it says, if your man doesn't recognize your relationship and bargain with you in good faith, that's not your man. That's Starbucks CEO Howard Shaw. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for the meme review, I try and minimize the number of just text memes that we have in here, <laughs> but that's such a good like joke about the Starbucks movement. I really couldn't avoid putting it in there. Yeah, I mean, I, I love this format, too, because like sometimes you can make it make like internal sense like this one does where it's like you can really kind of get strung along by the premise but then other times it's like ladies if your man uh inhales all the food at the table and is small and round and pink that's not your man that's kirby <laughs> yeah absolutely and then so for this next one we've got your classic a modification of the Drake meme um, where here you've got two pictures of one of the, I don't know if there's actually a name 
for this toy. I'm, I'm, I'm going to look it up. Symbol monkey it, toy. Yeah, it's the monkey with the symbols where you wind him up and he clangs the symbols together. It, There's probably it, it looks like it's called symbol banging monkey toy. That seems to be the <laughs> official name. <laughs> oh, better known as Jolly Chimp. So Jolly Chimp is what we're going to call okay, it. Okay, so this is this is a Jolly Chimp. <laughs> I think this might actually be from Toy Story. I'm not sure. Oh, um, yeah. But so the top one, the monkey's just sitting there not doing anything with dead eyes. And it's when you're an at-will employee. <laughs> and then at the bottom, he's not actually clanging the symbols together. He's got like star shades on. Mm-hmm. And he's got a big smile. And it's when you're union and have a contract. Hell yeah. Party time. Well, that reminds me of one of my all-time favorite memes, which is just, they're grooving. Have you seen that one? And it's got the little stick people on like a disco floor and they're grooving. And I don't really know. Like it might've been the punchline to another meme originally, but I've only ever seen the (laughs) they're grooving image. And every time like there's a a union win or like a new union gets announced, they're having an election. I'm like, Oh yeah, they're grooving. (laughs) (laughs) That's the level of like completely like, incomprehensible reference that ends up being like one of those earworms that you just like can't get out of your head. Exactly. Exactly. Kind of like if anybody ever reminds you of the whistle stop song from the beginning of the animated Robin Hood movie and you spend the rest of the day walking around D-B-D-B-D-B-D-O-D-A. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and so this next one, this is a, 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 a this is a dinosaur comics mm-hmm. one. Uh, this one I mostly just threw in here because like, job interviews are fucking terrible. And I feel like a lot of people who have been through them can empathize with this. It's so you've got like, I don't know, like a little brontosaurus being interviewed by another dinosaur behind a desk who says, you got at multitasking and the brontosaurus responds, No. Oh, so you like to focus on one task until it's done. Also. No, which <laughs> <laughs> are just like, damn, uh, it can definitely empathize with that. Yeah. Uh, dinosaur comics. <laughs> I mean, I really feel that even when I'm working on a task I like, it's like hard for me to organize the, the workflow of what I'm doing. Um, I've, yeah, cause it's, I think people assume like, they're like, John, you're pretty smart. You must have it pretty together. Right. And I'm like, no, actually I use being pretty smart as an excuse to not get it together. Uh, <laughs> you know, life hack. I yeah. Guess. Cause like, you can never give like the real answer to this. Cause it's basically like, Oh, how do you like to organize your work? And I'm like, well, I like to front load it so I can get my work done as quickly as possible so that I can then fuck off for the rest of the day and not do anything. Yeah. I like <laughs> 60% of my work time to be spent playing the new FromSoft game. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. Uh, but yeah, so, uh, then we have another tweet one, uh, where it's, it's a text and an image this time. And it says, uh, it's from D- Dan Berger and it says Biden administration decision tree for every single issue. And then you have the guy looking at two buttons meme and the one button is labeled more cops and the other one is labeled vote harder. And the guy is sweating, <laughs> trying to decide which one to pick, which I think is slightly inaccurate. The actual Democrat plan for this would involve the last panel saying multi-track drifting. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> you yeah, well, know, it'd be the, um, the, the, the soda machine one oh, where you yeah. have the guy is pushing both <laughs> flavors. Yeah. 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 Damn, I think we just made this meme even better. <laughs> Hell yeah. That we're, we're our new segment called the punch up yeah, where we punch <laughs> up your memes. Um, and then, and uh, then good. Yeah. And then for our last one, real simple one, I mean, sure. Anybody who's on the left has, has had this stupid conversation where you've got the caption, 
heard this a million times under communism, every aspect of your life will be controlled by an authoritarian. And then you got this with this caption capitalism. And then you got a screen cap from office space. where are just like, I have eight bosses. <laughs> God, I remember just as an aside, I remember seeing that movie for the first time when I was like a teenager and it blew my fucking mind. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is a real movie, man. Uh, and then I realized Mike judge made it and I was like, oh yeah, this is King. This is the King of the Hill guy. <laughs> but also as a quick aside, whatever happened to Ron Livingston, the guy who's like the main guy from office space, oh, yeah. you don't, you just don't see him in things anymore. Yeah. I don't know. He fell off weird. <laughs> Who knows? But yeah, anyways, there is no more authoritarian system under which we could live than capitalism. So like for any of the like flaws that have absolutely existed in every actually existing socialist project, the people there under which workers have actually taken power have been freer than we have ever been as Americans a single day of our lives. I mean, that's the crazy thing is you see all of these polls where it's like, what are the happiest countries in the world? And then they just don't poll the socialist countries. <laughs> yeah. They're like, we're not really worried about China, Cuba, and Vietnam. Let's focus on Norway. Yeah. <laughs> Denmark. Yeah. So that we can sigh out people into thinking that social democracy is the like absolute pinnacle of so of like human development. And there is nothing better than that. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to Denmark an incredibly, you know, ethnically, religiously and socially homogenous country. It's not authoritarian though. Okay. It just, <laughs> yeah. it just ended up that way on its own. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All the, all that Swedish imperialism, they just did that by accident. Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's my new favorite conspiracy theory is Denmark just did that. <laughs> there was no there was no guidance there was no thought there was no plan yeah. <laughs> just just stumbled into creating a maritime empire <laughs> yeah oopsie <laughs> guess this oh, is what man. happens when you're a peninsula uh F florida will <laughs> soon right. do the same thing and <laughs> uh anyway uh lena usually does this part so i'm a little off my balance uh, it's like i'm it's it's like when you expect there to be another step and then there's not one. So uh, thank you so much for listening to the episode, everybody. We are entirely listener supported. So thank you so much for the money that you give us on Patreon. Get in the Discord. Give us a five-star review wherever you think it will help. Uh, make sure to follow us on Twitter. You can follow the show at WorkStoppagePod. You can follow me at FacebookVillain. Uh, and please listen to BP Bledis and Red Game Table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest. Solidarity forever. Solidarity, everybody. Did I do it right? Uh, <laughs> 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 All right. <laughs>